The following is a conversation with Dr. John Conklin. John is a Knox Millsaps associate professor and is the head of the Precision Space Systems Laboratory in the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering at the University of Florida. He's been at UF since 2012 after receiving his engineering degrees from first at Cornell and then at Stanford. He is the recipient of numerous awards from the NASA and AIAA, as well as receiving the Teacher of the Year Award from the department in 2015. Our conversation centers on his laboratory's work on the upcoming LISA gravity wave observer set to be launched in the coming years. We also discuss the nature of gravity waves, general relativity, and how satellites move and communicate in space. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Dickrell, and now, my conversation with Dr. John Conklin. Hi, John. Hey. How's it going? It's going just fine. Happy to be here. You're a hard guy to get a hold of. You're pretty busy. And, and that's actually what I'd like to talk to you about. I typically like to do a deep dive on the guests, either Google Scholar or website, just to get a sense of what they're up to these days. And I would say, if you look at your work in the last 10 years, there's a lot of space activities. And so talk to me about what you do uh, with respect to outer space. Yeah, so um, my lab is the Precision Space Systems Lab, and I think that the two important words there are precision and space. So we uh, develop novel technologies, really instrumentation, uh, precision instrumentation for space applications, whether it be um, space navigation um, or NASA science missions. Those are the sort of the main applications of what we do. Um, we like to flesh out um, new ideas and do experiments in the lab. Um, we develop those into, you know, um, you know sort of tabletop demos. Uh, and then um, for most of our project, our largest projects are flight programs. So we have to eventually deliver flight hardware for an actual mission. And so we go from that sort of benchtop demo to something that's um, more flight-like, packaged in the appropriate way, tested in the space environment, uh, simulated here on Earth, of course, and then eventually deliver to NASA or, or whomever and, and uh, operate the technology in space. Okay, so how long has the lab been around? Uh, 10 years. I got here 10 years ago. Okay. And how many things have flown in outer space? Uh, so far, two. Um, the first was a, a CubeSat, which is like a satellite the size of a loaf of bread. Um, that was called CHOMPED because we are the University of Florida, and my students are very clever in coming up with acronyms. Do that, you remember that, the acronym? Uh, yeah, CubeSat Handling of Multi-System Precision Time Transfer. Um, CHOMPTT. Yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a time transfer experiment, but it's a, a loaf of bread kind of CubeSat that was launched in December of 2018. Um, uh, it's still working in space to this still day, there. in fact. Yeah, still there, still operating it. The, the science... Uh, the technology demonstration uh, is is done. Our, actually, the final paper was just accepted uh, uh, to be published. But we still operate it um, largely as a sort of educational thing, mostly with undergrads who come in and, and operate the spacecraft. So it's still flying. It's still flying. It should deorbit in another three years ish, something like that. Is this just a natural deorbit where the the drag is sufficient that it just like sucks it down and then burns up. And it's small enough that it, there's nothing going to be left, right? No, yeah. You have to do analysis ahead of time, number one, to show that it will reenter within 25 years per NASA rules, and that when it does reenter, there's nothing that's going to make it to the ground. So we went through that analysis process. Uh, the Air Force, maybe the Space Force now, tracks every object, you know, bigger than a spoon in, in orbit. And so they track our object. Um, 
and they'll predict. I mean, there's nothing to see. We won't know the exact day or time, um, but after the fact, we'll know that it it has deorbited. I guess while we're on this, like really quickly, like what does time transfer mean? Yeah, so um, it's clock synchronization, right? Um, there's no such thing as true time. You say your your phone is off by so many seconds with respect to real time, but there is no real time, right? It's just a human construct. So uh, it's all about comparing two clocks, and uh, any two clocks you compare are going to have some difference in in the time that they are telling you, and so it's all about synchronizing those clocks to a very precise level. Why? Uh, because that is the basis for pretty much all navigation that we utilize today, right? So GPS. So this was originally funded by the Air Force Research Lab as um, an alternate approach to doing sort of GPS navigation. GPS is, you know, 24 atomic clocks in orbit, and the spacecraft is just sending the signal down to your phone saying, okay, this is my time, this is where I am, this is my time, this is where I am. And if your phone gets enough of those signals, it can figure out where it is in space, and it's um, the error in a clock with respect to GPS time. So, um, you know, position knowledge and time knowledge are uh, intimately linked through the speed of light because you, you're measuring how long it takes a radio wave to get from a transmitter to a receiver. You know the speed of light. Uh, therefore, if you can time the transmission and arrival, you can calculate that distance, and which tells you where you are. Cool. So that was TT. What was the other one? So we have uh, an, uh, another... Uh, CubeSat, again, that was deployed last year from the International Space Station. This is a collaboration uh, between the University of Florida, uh, MIT, Aero Astro Department, and the NASA Ames Research Center. It's also an acronym uh, called CLIC, which is CubeSat uh, Laser Inter Infrared Crosslink. You have to be creative in how you get that to spell CLIC, but it does. Um, and that is, um, that is meant to demonstrate a laser link between two CubeSats. Uh, that serves multiple purposes. One is a communications link, so using a laser to communicate data between spacecraft rather than radio waves. And then again, uh, to do precision ranging, measuring the distance between the spacecraft and clock synchronization between the spacecraft. So uh, UF's part of the puzzle was more focused on the navigation side, so the ranging and the uh, clock synchronization, while the MIT crew is really interested in, in laser communications as a technology. And so NASA put our teams together uh, and flew it. It's, it's a three CubeSat mission. The first one uh, in NASA parlance is a risk mitigation, meaning we're going to fly one CubeSat to test a couple pieces of the puzzle that are needed to make the full system work. Um, that's been largely successful. In fact, it's going to deorbit uh, soon. That's uh, in weeks or month time frame, maybe two months. The International Space Station is a low altitude, so they, the spacecraft don't uh, last as long there. The, the second mission, which is the pair of CubeSats, is um, launching early next year, also from the space station. Okay, so... They they will be up there, and now when they launch them from the space station, how do they how do they actually launch it from a space station? So they put it, in, you know, um, there's this company called Nanoracks uh, based in Texas, um, and they provide this service. I guess they're contracted with NASA. You deliver your CubeSat to them. Um, they will bundle it up and they put it inside the SpaceX Dragon capsule or whatever the launch vehicle is. But it's yeah, th th there's more than one uh, way to get to the space station, but. Um, uh, it's typically in either a crew resupply mission, which meaning 
you know, food and supplies and experiments for the space station, or even in uh, the crewed vehicles um, in the kind of the, the, the storage part. And it goes up to the space station. It docks with the space station. The astronauts take all the stuff out, including our CubeSat. Um, and uh, eventually, when they get the time to deploy it, they'll put it in this kind of specialized kind of airlock uh, and just throw it out. Okay. It's a deployment mechanism with a spring, right? Very simple. That okay. just basically chucks it out of the space station. Yeah, that, that was, you know, the very inelegant mental image was just an astronaut throwing it like a football. And I'm like, <laughs> it's going to be more complicated than that. But it sounds like it's not terribly more complicated. No, it's not terribly more complicated. Uh, there's a lot of safety issues you have to deal with when you're putting hardware in the space station because you know, that's people's home, you know. Um, but yeah, astronauts touching our hardware and, and you know, deploying our, our payload and for us. And really chucking out the window. Yeah. That's awesome. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Now, now, with respect to the CubeSats, you said your group was dealing with the instrumentation. So the, the CubeSats themselves... Is there like an off-the-shelf CubeSat that people, like that researchers will just use and employ? Yeah, so um, my lab in particular, we'd like to focus on what's new, what's novel, what's pushing the state of the art. Um, CubeSat spacecraft and spacecraft in general is decades-old technology. Um, miniaturizing it is, is really, relatively new. But there are companies out there that will sell you a CubeSat and say, okay, this bit of the spacecraft, you can put your payload to do whatever experiment or mission you want. Uh, and so for the Click mission, we are, uh, we are using a commercial spacecraft bus, as it's called. So there's a bus and a payload that make up the spacecraft from uh, Blue Canyon Technologies in, in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, and MIT and University of Florida are providing the, the optical payload. Small question. Why would laser communication be preferable to radio? No, that's a that's a good question. Um, it's all about uh, power efficiency. There are a number of motivations, but for let's say sort of civilian applications, it's it's power efficiency. So um, the the divergence of uh, electromagnetic wave um, is inversely proportional to the wavelength of the light. I hope I'm getting that right. So higher frequency EM waves diverge far less. You know, that laser pointer is like, you know, point-to-point -point transmission, whereas a, a radio signal spreads out all over the place. So if you send a radio signal over a long distance in space, most of that power that you're radiating goes off to nowhere, right? Whereas if you use a laser, a much higher fraction of the transmitted power actually gets to your receiver. So you need less power overall to make that communications link. And the longer the distance, the more that that's important um, to, to what we, how we say close the, the communications link. Okay, in my head, I'm thinking a sniper rifle versus shotgun. Yeah. Is... Or is a grenade, maybe. <laughs> well, yeah, well, but, but in terms of, I, I would say, you know, not knowing a lot about transmission of communications in outer space... If something is really, really far away, if you have a very tight, focused laser beam, is then alignment like tricky, or is it just not? Yeah, and that, so that's exactly that's exactly the trade-off. So you get power efficiency because more of your transmitted power gets to the receiver, so you need less of it. Um, the downside is you need to point really well, um, and that's a big part of this click uh, demonstration. Is can we? point a laser beam from one you know loaf of bread in space to another loaf of bread in space where they're separated by you know 800 900 kilometers um, and so you need to point really well it's a combination of um, we're getting a really really high-end spacecraft bus from Blue Canyon that they they produce some of the um, cube sets that can point the most accurate 
Um, but that's not even good enough. And so we have a, a, a fine steering mirror, a MEMS mirror that does the inner control loop um, for the beam pointing, the part that the spacecraft pointing can't handle. Okay, so that that's the trade-off between sort of transmission energy efficiency and then alignment, right? So if you want to be very efficient, you have to be very good at basically hitting the target that, that is a long way away. Yeah, and there are other advantages that say more defense-focused things. So, um, you know, a laser communication is point-to-point, right? If you're transmitting from one point in space and, and receiving it another or space-to-ground, right? No one that's not in that target region will can get intercept. the signal, can intercept it and get the signal. So there's a there's a security aspect of it as well. Okay, cool. The, so we're, I know where we're going. I'm, I'm feeding towards the laser interferometer space antenna. Yeah. So that's Lisa. I actually have a little bit of connection with you in this in that the Lisa mission is to study eventually like gravity waves, right? Okay, cool. So way back in the day, I worked on the OG LIGO project uh-huh. uh, in Hanford, right? So as, a, as an undergrad, I was in- Did I know this? Uh, we may have talked about this a long time ago, but you know, I've I've been inside the original laser interferometer gravity wave observer LIGO. Um, that you know, what was it? When did they first release it? It was a few years ago. Like the first uh, detection. Yeah, was first detection. Twenty fifteen. Twenty fifteen. Okay. In, yeah. Right. So yeah, this was probably way back. You know, ten or fifteen years earlier. But you know, as a as a young undergraduate, basically AutoCAD tech. Uh-huh. Like I had all the drawings for the input optics, right? So the University of Florida was in charge of kind of like handing off the beam. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, this is the physics like Dave Wrightsey and Dave Tanner um, way back in the day. But anyway, so it's like... Still work with those guys. But I remember, I remember the term Lisa was around even like the beginning of the 2000s, right? This was like looking for like way off in the future, there was going to be floating satellites in space that were going to do the same job as the terrestrial LIGO observer. And, you know, back then it was it's like, wow, this is science fiction. But now I'm talking to the person that is, like, intimately involved with a lot of LISA development. So I guess if you tell the, the person at home kind of like the high-altitude description of what, what the LISA project is. Yeah, so maybe uh, we start with gravitational waves. Okay. Okay. Um, they are... You think of it as a space observatory, like a telescope, okay? Um, and the analogy is, you know, a telescope is sort of your eyes on the universe, whereas a gravitational wave observatory are your ears on the universe. So um, while light is a wave that propagates through space, a gravitational wave is actually a propagating distortion of space and time itself, okay? So, um, and Einstein predicted this 100 years ago, um, if you have a very energetic event in the universe, um, it will cause space-time to shudder and radiate these ripples in space-time away from the source at the speed of light, just like light, um, which can be observed here on Earth or you know in our solar system. Um, and you know, uh, LISA or LIGO is designed to detect those. Um, we can talk about how that's done, but a little bit more about gravitational waves. What causes them, um, the, some of the most energetic events in the universe are the primary source uh, of gravitational waves. The canonical one for LISA is a supermassive black hole merger. Okay, so most galaxies, if not all galaxies, including our own, um, have at the heart a very, very massive black hole. 
Um, the one at the center of the Milky Way is millions of times the mass of our sun. And every so often in the universe, these galaxies collide and the black holes at the centers of those galaxies collide. Um, so now imagine you take an object that um, is a million times the mass of our sun and another object that's maybe a million times the mass of our sun and slam them together at close to the speed of light. That's the sort of energy that your brain should be thinking about in terms of gravitational waves. It's tremendous. There's, there's, there's no more energetic event that we know of except maybe the Big Bang itself. So um, it, it causes space-time to shudder. These ripples get uh, um, travel away from the source. Eventually, they'll come through our solar system. And we can detect them and learn about what caused the gravitational wave, You know, what, what are the masses of the black hole, where were they in the universe, what their spin and angular momentum were. Uh, and get a sort of census of all of these events that are happening throughout the universe. And that, so as of 2015, that was done on Earth. Yes. But there are limitations to the observatories on Earth, right? Exactly. And so basically you could talk about that a little bit, but that's basically the space-based version is designed to kind of take care of that as well as probably some other things. Yeah, so there, again, there's an analogy with, you know, light detection telescopes, right? It, it's all about the wavelength. So on the Earth, you know, with, using LIGO, they measure gravitational waves that are um, hundreds of hertz or maybe kilohertz, so sort of frequencies that we can hear. Um, LISA will measure things that are millihertz, so objects that are orbiting with a sort of thousand second period. Uh, you can't detect those on the ground because the Earth itself is gravitationally noisy at sort of 100 second, 1,000 second, 10,000 second time periods, right? We've got tides, we've got trains, we've got all kinds of things going on. And unfortunately, you can't shield gravity, right? If we could shield gravity, then we'd do anti-gravity and all kinds of cool stuff like that, but we can't. So the only way to suppress the gravity noise of the Earth itself is to get really far away from it. And so that's what LISA does. It gets away from the gravity noise of the Earth. It also allows us to build a, a, a ginormous uh, uh, antenna that can measure these very low-frequency yeah, low gravitational wave signals. Now, when you say ginormous, correct me if I'm wrong, um, it's three satellites in an equilateral triangle, like corners of the equilateral triangle, so yeah. basically uh, uh, the most mathematically perfect triangle you can make. But the distance between the satellites is... 2.5 million kilometers? Yeah, that's right. So, like, I looked that up. That's, like, six and a half distances from the Earth to the moon. Yep. From, okay, yeah. cool. I got, right. I got my facts now. So, it's it's much bigger than the Earth-Moon system. People say that LISA will be the largest instrument built by humankind, uh, which it will be, because, I mean, it, it operates as a single uh, instrument. Um, and so, this gets to, down to about how we detect gravitational waves. It's always been interesting to me that we're measuring these crazy astrophysical phenomena like colliding black holes and other things um, deep in our universe. And to do it, we're using sort of bread and butter mechanical and aerospace engineering technologies. So you need two things to detect gravitational waves. You need some sort of mass or object that you put in a very pure freefall. So imagine you have these things, we call them test masses, they're blocks of metal. And you put them in a, in a very quiet environment such that their dynamics is only governed by gravity. No other forces are acting, all other forces are suppressed, uh, so they're only under the influence of gravity. And then you very precisely measure the changes in distance between those two objects. Okay, and as the wave 
comes through, it stretches and compresses space. And each of these test masses are living in their own local inertial reference frame. And we use a laser, laser interferometer, uh, to measure this very uh, subtle variation in that distance. Right? So we mentioned two and a half million kilometers is the distance between them. We need to measure the changes in the distance down to the fraction of the width of an atom. Okay, so this is 10 to the minus 11 meters is the accuracy that's needed. Um, that's the laser interferometer part. So you need to put objects in very pure free fall, and you need to measure the separation between them very, very accurately. What's the biggest technical challenge that you see in that, that whole description that you made, right? Because it sounds really hard from my perspective. Like, all of it sounds hard, right? But, I mean, I, I think you have a better handle on the technical challenges. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of really detailed technical challenges that's probably not worth going into. And there are programmatic talent challenges. This is a big... Uh, international mission uh, with many stakeholders in many different countries. So there's a, a um, programmatic challenge. Um, there was a, a, a precursor uh, tech demo mission called LISA Pathfinder that flew in the last decade around the same time of the LIGO gravitational wave detection uh, that tested um, the part where you put these test masses in a very pure free fall. And it worked. It, in fact, it worked much better than, than we expected. You can't you can't put an object in um, nearly as good free fall on the Earth as you can in space because we have one this one G that's pulling down on us all the time. So that it's impossible to demonstrate the purity of the gravitational orbit of these test masses on the ground, so we had to do it in space. So that box is sort of checked. So the, the, it's then the part about measuring picometer displacements between objects separated two and a half million kilometers. Uh, it's the challenging part. LIGO on the ground actually does much better than that, but there's only four kilometers. I mean, it's not, that's, that's easy com compared to 2.5 million kilometers. And all of this stuff has to be put on a massive launch vehicle. It's got to survive you know, the, the rigors of the um, vibration and shock environment of launch. It's got to be deployed in space. It's going to operate millions of miles away from the Earth. Uh, and the, once it's up there, you can't tweak it, right? If something goes wrong on LIGO, you just get a technician in there and you, you know, you, you resolve the cable or whatever, but you don't have that luxury in a space mission. Uh, so it's got to work. It's, it's got to work the first time. Um, and again, there's this part, uh, the interferometry part that hasn't been uh, demonstrated at this level in space yet. So what's your lab's contribution? Because you said it was a large, like, international collaboration, the right. LISA mission. So what does the, the PSSL do? Yeah, so... Um, uh, we are related, related to the um, the free falling test mass part of the of the mission. Um, our contribution it's what's called the the charge management device, which is part of the charge management system. So you have these test masses; they're four point six uh, centimeters across, gold platinum alloy, very dense, very expensive, um, and they're freely floating inside the spacecraft. And the spacecraft, so you want that test mass to be in a purely gravitational Wait, orbit. Wait, what was the size of the test mass again? 4.6 uh, centimeter. Oh, okay, so you can hold it in your hand. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's two kilograms. It's about a, you know, it's a pound, five pounds. Okay. Yeah. So um, surprisingly dense if you were to pick one of these things up. Um, and so the spacecraft basically protects that test mass, puts it in a very clean environment. Um, the main culprit is the sun. Right, the sun is shining on the spacecraft and pushing them 
Okay, you may have heard about solar sails and using that for, for, for propulsion. Well, that's not non-gravitational force, so we have to cancel that out somehow. So the, the test mass is inside. Um, there's a feedback control system that monitors the position of that test mass and commands small thrusters on the outside of the spacecraft to basically chase that test mass on its purely gravitational orbit. So the spacecraft flies around the it's, test mass. It's a formation flying mission, right, where the spacecraft is flying in formation with an object that's inside of it. This is called drag-free technology. Um, uh, my advisor at Stanford, PhD advisor, actually was the PI for the first, very first drag-free mission back in the 70s. Uh, so Why is it called drag-free? Uh, because it was initially used for Earth orbit, so one of the biggest uncertainties in determining the orbit of the spacecraft is atmospheric drag. We have all these fancy models okay. to predict atmospheric drag, but they all have you know, a factor of two or 10 uncertainty. So if you can cancel the drag from the beginning, then you don't have to worry about it. So it's, it's, it, you, it's a way to put a spacecraft in orbit that is free of atmospheric drag. So if you have to actively fly the spacecraft in formation with the test mass, you know, you have a finite amount of propellants. Like, how long can you can you do that before basically you run out of run out of gas and the the spacecraft can't actually fly in formation anymore? Yeah. Uh, so that's that's part of the mission design. Um, the baseline mission duration is four years, four years of science okay. operation. Okay. But we're carrying consumables to last at least ten. And typically, if you build something to last a few years and it lasts a few years, it's going to last a lot longer. So it, it's very likely that the, the observatory will last a decade. It's a, it's a $2 billion observatory, so it's, it's um, not something that you want to just work for a few months in space. You want it to operate for a long time. Um, uh, yeah, so they carry that much fuel uh, on board. But just getting back to our piece of the puzzle, so now we have this test mass in pure, pure freefall. Spacecraft is flying around it. The problem is electrostatic charge. So there are cosmic rays uh, and there are um, events that the, you know, solar energetic events that can deposit you know, electric charge on the test mass. There's no grounding wire. There's nothing but vacuum between the test mass and the spacecraft. And um, if left unchecked, you can build up maybe several volts of, uh, of potential on that test mass. And if that charged test mass comes in contact with an electric field, you get a Coulomb force, F equals Q times E. Guess what? Spacecraft has some electronics on it that produces electric fields. You try to suppress all of that, but it's not good enough. So you need a way to essentially ground the test mass without touching it. And we do that using uh, ultraviolet light. So this is, this is our, our piece of the puzzle. Um, if you uh, illuminate a, a surface, a metallic surface, let's say, with uh, light with um, photons that are energetic enough, those photons will excite the electrons in the surface. Uh, and eventually, they excite them so much that they leave their, their host atom altogether. Interesting. So you can like evaporate the surface charge? Yeah. You, it, it's, it's called photoemission. Um, Why well, use evaporate in a very like, yeah, yeah. loose sense? It yeah. is a way to uh, extract or coax uh, electrons from parting their their host nucleus, right? So if you use ultraviolet light, which is highly energetic, that's why we get you know sunburns. Um, you uh, yeah, you excite those electrons and you liberate them from the test mass, and you can get them to cross over that vacuum gap from the test mass to the spacecraft. And so it's a way to discharge the test mass without shining it using do you have a, ultraviolet do you have like light. Like a collector. Or is it just sufficiently to kick them off the surface that they then? Well, you, yeah, uh, it's a. I mean, it's a bit more complicated that I'm letting on because once that electron is free, it's 
its dynamics is subject to uh, Maxwell's equations and the electric field, right? Just like the test mass is. So um, it will tend to follow or will be forced along the direction of the electric field. So you have to pay attention to when we're illuminating the test mass, what's the electric field at that point? Um, will the electron, will enough electrons cross that gap to discharge the test mass? Um, yeah, so it's a part of, it's, it's, it is a feedback control system. Um, well, it, let's say it's a control system that's not dealing with the dynamics of the test mass, but the charge of the test mass. And you've you published papers on this, haven't you? Yes. Okay. Now, and I'm assuming it worked in the lab, um, and then have it had, actually worked in this Lisa Pathfinder mission. Okay. Now, I was going to say, like, it worked space. in a lab, but then has it worked in space? And it has. Okay. And it, even before Lisa Pathfinder, we used that technology for another NASA mission called Gravity Pro B that I worked on when I was a PhD student. Um, Lisa borrowed it from Gravity Probe B, actually. Uh, but the the main difference between Lisa Pathfinder and Lisa is that the technology has changed. So we're using new uh, ultraviolet light sources that are they're LEDs, in fact, um, which for previously had these much more complicated vapor lamps. So imagine flying this you know gas vapor lamp in space. It's not as easy as flying an LED, right? So um, and that brings a whole new set of capabilities. Uh, power efficiency. Um, it's more compact. It's a longer lifetime, which is important for a 10-year mission. Um, and that's the new piece of the puzzle that, that our lab is bringing to the table. And uh, both NASA and the European Space Agency thought that while this innovation is uh, useful enough, in fact, it's lighter, more power efficient, um, longer lifetime, uh, more, more capable technology, it just didn't fly in space before. So um, the big part of what we're doing is um, getting that technology ready to fly in space for Lisa. How many people in your lab? At the moment, we have nine PhD students. Um, and as you may know, we have uh, Peter Wass in our lab, um, who is absolutely critical. He's sort of a, he's the second PI in, in our lab. Um, we have two assistant scientists at the moment and three postdocs and then half a dozen undergrads. So we're like 20 low 20s, something like that kind of lab. Okay, so your lab looks like it's made up of very senior and very junior. Oh, yeah. Right, okay. Yes. Is, is that a model that, that you like, or is it just where you are right now? No, no, no that, that's intentionally set up that way. I mean, um, I am so busy that I, I doesn't, sorry to say this, but I, I can't give the individual one-on-one -on -one time with my, my students as that I would like. I meet with every one of my students every week, multiple times. Um, but sometimes uh, I'm on an airplane or I'm in a meeting and, you know, my grad students have questions. They have a whole sort of hierarchy of people that they can go to um, to ask questions from postdocs to scientists and, and uh, to faculty members. So I sort of need that, that sort of uh, hierarchical structure so that everyone gets the support that they need uh, to get the research done that they're doing. Do you miss being in the trenches? Yes and no. Um, I'm, I'm not so much in the, the trenches, you know, as you said. To, well, to be you, you talk about being in meetings and airplanes and stuff like that, which is the very important part of being like a very successful PI. But right. you do lose that intense contact of being in the lab, turning wrenches. Yeah, you know, unless I'm wrong, you know, unless no, you no, are. But. You're, you're absolutely right. My, my PhD thesis, for example, was, you know, I was in the lab every day, you know, tweaking lasers and mechanical bits and whatever. Um, and I enjoyed it. Um, I, so I do miss it a bit. Um, it can be frustrating experimental work when you design and build something and it doesn't work and you can't figure out why and you're pulling your hair out, you know, that, that stuff. Um, 
sometimes you don't miss so much. Um, but there are other things on the programmatic side that are both good and bad. I mean, it's nice to be the big picture person in the lab, you know, trying to um, keep everyone focused on, you know, what the, what is the end goal? What is all of this stuff? You know, why are you soldering this IC onto a PCB? You know, it's to detect gravitational waves, right? To, to, and so I, I enjoy that that aspect of it. There's a lot of bureaucratic stuff that's not so yeah. bad. Yeah, and you know, I don't know if you're teaching as much as you used to, but I think you and I used to teach the same class. Yeah, um, dynamics. Yeah, when you teach dynamics, I love it, by the way. You like you like, you like to teach. Uh, it's my favorite class to teach, and I love to. I mean, undergrads at that level are are, are great, great to work yeah, with. Yeah, well, they're very curious, and you know, you're sort of showing them how the universe works at right. kind of a low level, but still, you know, yeah. it's illuminating. I guess the question I would ask is like, when you teach dynamics, do you ever take the time to kind of impart a little bit of like wisdom um, on your students? And if if that I, if you do, like. Do you have any highlights of what that is? I do. First of all, I, I talk about general relativity. I mean, we don't teach general relativity in you know engineering dynamics, um, but I talk about it. You know that that's this is the true, um, as far as we know, the true laws of of mechanics is, is general relativity. Um, we're we're teaching Newton's laws because it works in ninety nine point nine nine percent of applications for us engineers. But I always I always try to relate it back to the differences between Newtonian mechanics and, and Einstein's theory. The other thing, I, I, you know, past missions I've worked on, uh, I take some lessons learned and I try to impart those, like something simple like a coordinate transformation, right? It's it's one of those things that um, seems like it should be easy. I mean, you've done this many times before. You've got one coordinate system, you need to rotate a vector into another coordinate system. It's actually, you know, you got to look at the geometry and you've got to write down that transformation. It's not like, oh, here's the formula for coordinate transformations. I plug in these values and here's the answer. You've got to, like, understand the geometry of what's going on, visualize it in your mind and, and calculate how you do that transformation. And it's not as easy as, you know, one might think um, unless they've done it many times. And students, often, I also have students that struggle with coordinate transformations. And I tell this story when I was working on this Gravity Probe B mission back at Stanford. Um, we were doing this data analysis, trying to, to analyze the data from the spacecraft, and our models weren't fitting the data exactly. They were a little bit off. And, you know, four months, five months, you know, we're scratching our heads. Why? What's going on here? Why, why don't we understand the physics of the instrument we built and put in space? It turns out we screwed up the coordinate transformation. And uh, once we fixed that, then the, the data um, matched our models beautifully. So, I mean, I, you know, uh, sort of these lessons, like, you know, don't be intimidated by something that you think might be easy when, in fact, it's actually more subtle. I guess, lastly, I will ask, do you have any books, book recommendations that over the course of your life were impactful or, you know, sort of changed your view on something? Uh, you mean like uh, academic Any books. type of book, right? You know, whether it be, you know, like, you know, I read a novel by so-and-so and it really changed the way I looked at, you know, the outlook of my life. Or if there was a, like a technical work where you're like, oh my God, this is very inspiring. You know, this is just sort of something where when I talk to smart people, it's very interesting the the literary or, you know, sort of written word that has changed the course or trajectory of their life or just the way they think about things, Right. Yeah, I mean, that's a tough, um, it's sort of two separate questions for me. There's certain, you know, I've got like hundreds of textbooks on my, um, on my bookshelf in my office, and there are like four or something or five that I actually pull off, pull off the shelf and use. Um, actually, Neil Rao's dynamics book is one of them. Um, um, 
but in terms of novels, I've been um, uh, I've been a, a, a fantasy and sci-fi geek since I was a little kid, and th there's some certainly some novels there that um, that interest me. My, my favorite, perhaps, is is Dune by Frank Herbert. I, I, I love the sort of world building that that he does in those books. But there are other sort of um, when I was sort of elementary school, my grandfather, you know, gifted my brother and I this this giant tome of a book. I, called Our Universe, and it talked about, you know, big pictures, relatively easy to read for someone who's like maybe fourth grade or something like that, uh, and I was fascinated with it. I mean, I, I read that thing so many times and looked at it so many times that the, you know, the binding on it broke off, pages fell out, and he had to get me another one, you know, and that, you know, my parents at least um, credit that with, you know, getting me into this field in the first place. Did you, did you love space since then? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah. I remember... When I was a kid with my brother, then the I think the Voyager spacecraft was going by Neptune, and and PBS had the special to get you know see the first images from from Neptune. It was like three in the morning local time for me growing up in New Jersey, and my brother and I were glued to our little you know tube TV watching that at three in the morning. Uh, so yeah, I've, I've always been like that. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please stay tuned for more insightful and interesting conversations with people in engineering, industry, and science.